ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. It was a footy day like any other in 2006. The West Coast Eagles were on the field playing interstate team, the Sydney Swans. Ben Cousins was at the top of his game, and so was I. There I was dodging beer-wielding Eagles fans, suited up sponsors and gossiping footballers' wives. I juggled a stack of dirty lunch plates from one end of the corporate lunchroom to the kitchen without getting any food stains on my pristine white uniform. As I emptied the food scraps into the bin, someone suddenly grabbed my hand. You never said you were engaged. Then another, show us a photo. Who is he? I was too overwhelmed to speak. Oh, one of those, someone sniggered. Our supervisor came to my rescue and chased them away. Don't listen to them. Congratulations on your marriage. Your parents must be so proud. They are, I answered. But I was lying. My parents didn't even know. Hi, my name is Takum Budzi and I'm the new host of Earshot. This season we're hearing from people who have secrets they're yet to share with the world. This episode is my personal story. Something that I've never told in this way before. About a secret I held that broke my father's heart and how comedy helped me to break free from the shame of it all. Now, where were we? Oh yes, I was a 23-year-old international student studying architecture, newly married to the love of my life in Perth, Western Australia, and I hadn't told my parents in Zimbabwe. He was so, so disappointed. And he just said, I don't want to be angry at her. I don't want to show that I'm bitter about what happened. And then, you know, he kept quiet. That's my auntie Rashai, my father's younger sister. And listening to her, she sounds so calm. But I can tell you now, 18 years ago when the news of my international elopement came out, auntie Rashai was not calm. She was so, so angry. In traditional Zimbabwean culture, I am the child of my father's family. I belong to them. My auntie Rashai was meant to be the first to know about any marriage. Then it's her role to break the news to my father. I was also in shock because the person who was doing that was not supposed to be doing that. That person she's talking about is my mother. They've never been the best of friends. So my answer to that person was... Whose child is this? The fact that my mother had told my father's sister that I was married started the biggest feud between my father's family and my mother's. And it was all my fault. Talking about what he had heard, he said, do you know how much I have put in to this child? Do you know what I expected from this child? Now to help you understand why my secret marriage was such a big deal, Let me take you back to my childhood. I grew up in Harare, the capital city of Zimbabwe, the firstborn child in a house with three younger brothers. For 19 years, I was my father's prized only daughter until my baby sister Tendai was born in 2002. My father was strict. 
And in my high school years, he never liked me hanging out with boys anywhere, especially outside our house. I have countless memories of hormonal teenage me standing outside our metal security gate, flirting with a boy. Then suddenly, I'd hear thumping music coming from up the road. On the days I was too slow or the boy was too keen, it'd be too late. My father's red sports car would pull up next to us and he'd glare at us. Later, I'd get his favorite speech. Takuzwa, I don't want to see boys by my gate. Whilst my mother, all dressed in white, sat on the couch behind him, silently backing him up in his disapproval of me. Now, if you think my dad was strict, my mother, through her church, was stricter. I grew up in the church called Gutara Jehovah, which means City of Jehovah. It's a Pentecostal church that came out of the Methodist denomination and was started by a female faith healer in the 1950s. She declared herself part of the Holy Trinity alongside God and Jesus Christ, she being the reincarnation of the Holy Spirit. My mother's parents joined thousands of people from all around Zimbabwe who went to the faith healer to be cured of things like being barren, having disabilities, and ancestral witchcraft curses. My grandparents believed so much and became foundational elders of the church village outside Mutare City in eastern Zimbabwe near the Mozambican border. We mostly prayed outside in the dusty sand under a large tree and people danced around in circles in the middle of the church space called Diwi. Sometimes there'd be so much dust from all the stomping and marching, it'd be so thick you couldn't see the people next to you. Then we'd all sit down, teary-eyed, sinuses swamped, ready to listen to each other's testimonies. My mother, born into the church, was its chief rule enforcer during my childhood. And let me tell you, Living with her felt like hell on earth to adolescent me. The three church rules that I hated the most growing up were Rule number one, no colour. I could live with not growing my hair, not wearing makeup, and not piercing my body, but only wearing white? Women and girls can only wear white clothes and cover their heads with white dukus or head wraps. The white represents purity cleanliness and holiness, which the church believes brings the women closer to God. Anytime I wanted to wear anything with color, I was reminded of the bad spirits, the scary witchy ones that love anything black, the demonic ones that absolutely reveled in red, and the other unimaginable ones that thrived in any color in between. I had so many fights with my mother about wearing cream or beige. They were not white enough. Rule number two, spirit consultations. Zimbabweans are very spiritual people, and we've always been that way, long before the colonizers and missionaries came. A belief in animism, consulting our ancestors, and traditional rituals and ceremonies are common things in my culture. If anything bad happened in our family, my mother dragged us straight to the village to ask the church spirit mediums who done it. As a teenager, 
I thought it was so weird we were asking ghosts for advice. I grew up with fear, suspicion and superstitiousness constantly on my shoulder. Rule number three, purity. I didn't like how they had like purity tests and then they'd get it wrong. And if you didn't pass the purity test, they'd make you stand in front of everyone and kind of humiliate you, which once happened to me. And I was 12. That's my sister Tendai talking about the virginity tests that all unmarried girls and women in the church endured every Easter. The elder women physically examined everyone. Thankfully, despite my flirting with boys in the city, I always passed the test. It's the one time my mother and my grandmother were proudest of me, and I'd be showered with gifts and money. Purity paid. Finally, after days of more long prayers in the sun, spirit consultations, witnessing demon-possessed people fighting during services, being whipped with sticks for giggling, I'd wait impatiently at the church front gate for my father's red sports car to pull up music thumping, ready to pick us up. The rules were one thing, but the biggest thing I hated about Gutara Jehovah, my dad didn't go to the church. And that was a constant source of tension with my mother and made my teenage years even more difficult. The no color rule? My dad would return from work trips overseas with black Doc Martens, blue denim jeans, and red t-shirts, which I wasn't allowed to wear. The spirit consultations? Huh. Too many times to count, he dropped us at the church village and drove off into the sunset to do whatever he was doing whilst we endured my mother's spirit interrogations of who he was with and why. He was no angel, but still, it was too much information. And the purity tests? Well, my dad never talked to me about them, but I reckon he secretly appreciated them as backup to his no boys rule. The song we're singing here is one that's normally sung when people are about to travel. They sang this song at the last prayer meeting my mother hosted before I left for Australia. It's the one prayer meeting my father couldn't escape. And it's one of the rare times I saw him stuck in my mother's church world. After that prayer meeting, one of the church aunties pulled me aside and said sternly, Now when you get there, don't marry an Australian man. No ways, auntie, I laughed, because marriage was the last thing on my mind. I wanted to be an architect. We kind of knew that there was this other side to you. Like, you didn't kind of pretend that, like, life wasn't hard for you. That's Musha, one of my dear high school friends, and she's right. I went to one of the best all-girl private schools in Zimbabwe but I couldn't hide my other churchy life. Unlike my friends, my hair was always short and I didn't get to wear the same colourful clothes they did on free dress days. Making my school friends laugh became my coping superpower. Every day that I got ready for school, I knew it was a chance to perform. One day, I'd be impersonating my dad. Takuzwa, who is that boy by my gate? The next day, I'd be roasting the girls I didn't like. Your mama's so dumb, she... 
dot, dot, dot. The next, I'd be donning a ridiculous blonde wig on stage playing Blanche de Bois from a streetcar named Desire. When I was on stage in school plays, do you know who laughed loudest, camera in hand? My father. He was the biggest supporter of my performing. He's the one who used to take me to private drama classes, to drama Stedford competitions, and to auditions for TV shows and ads. And one of my favourite memories of my father? When he'd hoon up the driveway at night, music thumping, come into the house, gather me and my little brothers in the living room, put a CD in the stereo and blast his favourite song. Like this one by Alexander O'Neill. And he's the one who would start dancing and literally jumping on the sofas and tables with us, singing at the top of his lungs. Whenever I go out with you, I find out something new. You're a fake, baby. Then my mother would suddenly burst in and announce it was time for prayers. But my father wouldn't turn the music off. And my mother would sulk away leaving us to keep dancing knowing we were free from prayers for the night. Hallelujah! My dad let our imaginations run wild through the extensive pop culture he exposed us to. We watched cartoons together for hours on end, his favourites being Tom and Jerry and Looney Tunes. He played us every album from Bart Simpson to Bruce Springsteen. He bought us video games and playstations, and he let us watch hundreds of movies. Much to my mother's horror, we were obsessed with Predator, Poltergeist, and Ghostbusters. Encouraged by my father, I grew up laughing at the funny, ridiculous, and the weird. And it's no surprise that today I'm a filmmaker and work in children's TV. And much as I love it, filmmaking wasn't my first career choice. I'll never forget being at a relative's funeral in my last year of high school. An uncle from the church asked me what I wanted to study at university, and I told him architecture. He suggested I try nursing instead, and some church aunties chimed in in agreement. Catching my eye, my father stepped in and told them, Takudua can study architecture if she wants. The room went quiet. I loved my father so much in that moment. He really was my hero. I understand now that whilst the church tried to mould me into a spiritual girl with calm, pure energy, my father was literally doing the opposite, feeding my wild imagination, fueling my ravenous creativity and firing up my dreams for a better life beyond Guttara Jehovah. Because, for many girls in the church, Marriage is all that was ultimately expected of them. As soon as I landed in Perth, I made up for all the things I'd missed out on before. I was living my best life. Making friends, going out, clubbing, smoking, drinking, growing my hair, and piercing every body part I was brave enough to. I started dating and soon fell for an Australian guy I met through a friend. Before long, we'd moved in together and I convinced my parents I lived with a female housemate. They were none the wiser and leading a double life became second nature to me. 
By the time my boyfriend proposed, my parents in Zimbabwe were going through a bitter divorce. I knew there was no way they would have agreed to my getting married. I eloped, and I didn't invite them to my wedding. You know that saying that it's easier to ask for forgiveness than for permission? No, it wasn't easier. It's actually one of the hardest things I've ever had to do in my life. The secrecy and guilt ate at me for months after my wedding, and I eventually had to come clean. I was too chicken to tell my parents directly, so I did what all big sisters do, and I called home and asked my younger brother to tell them. When I called back to hear their reaction, my brother said, Oh yeah, Mama laughed, and Dad screamed the house down. My parents found out at the same time, but my father and his sister, Auntie Rashai, thought my mother had orchestrated it all, secret boyfriend and international wedding. It was a devastating mess, and worst of all, my father refused to speak to me for a year. Your father was super, super disappointed and uh, shattered. You know, it's like all the dreams about your daughter, they have gone. I really broke his heart. It's like betrayal. It was like total betrayal. I went through a long, painful process of apologizing to my father to officially ask for his forgiveness. With Auntie Rashai's help, I reverse-engineered what I should have done in the first place. I'll look at the boyfriend, I'll ask you a lot of questions, and then I'll find out what, you know, whether you're really serious about getting married and, you know, all that. Especially the questions that your parents or the parents of the girl is supposed to, to be asking when I get there. There'll be a day put aside by the parents to say, okay, now you want to get married. After the dowry has been paid, you are married. My dowry was finally back paid. And within a few months, I had another surprise for my family. A visit home. It was my first time back in Zimbabwe since I'd left for Australia six years ago. When I saw my father, I ran and nearly knocked him over. I was so happy to see him and he embraced me and kept saying my name, Takudzwa, Takudzwa, and laughing. When I introduced my Australian husband, my father was wholeheartedly welcoming and instantly gave us his blessing. We spent time reconnecting laughing, and the rest of that trip with my family was joyous. By the time I flew back to Australia, I felt proud and relieved. I was officially a married woman in my father's eyes. About three days after we came back from Zimbabwe, I was feeling homesick and looking at a slideshow of my family holiday photos on our big TV. My husband came in and sat behind me on the couch. A rugby match was just about to start and he told me to look at my family photos later. His impatience was no match for my determination that day. And I told him he could wait a few minutes since it was mainly ads at the start anyway. I kept scrolling through the slideshow on the TV without looking up. Suddenly, he poured his hot cup of tea over my head and stormed out. I waited for the tea and shock to cool. I looked down at my wet top and then up to the screen where my family in Zimbabwe stared back 
silently watching it all. But you just met my father, I raged. I didn't understand. After all I'd put in. After all I'd given up. The truth is, I'd been putting up with a lot for the three years that I'd been married. I'd been wearing another mask, one that I wore tighter on that trip to Zimbabwe. I was pretending to be a happy wife and that all was well in Australia. It was a Perth Saturday like any other. I was working as a fashion designer and had a photo shoot. But I was really sick in the tummy and I couldn't explain it. I thought I was pregnant and secretly couldn't wait to leave the shoot, do a test and break the news to my family. After all, everyone loves babies. But also, I hoped having a baby would save my marriage that was privately spiralling out of control. After a confusing negative test result, I was still feeling unusually sick. I tried to call my mother. I tried to call my aunties. I tried to call my father. I tried everyone and couldn't get through the whole weekend. I even went on Facebook to ask if anyone else was having trouble making calls to Zimbabwe. No one else was. On the Monday morning, I finally got through to my mother's office and her secretary answered. Oh, Taukudzua, I'm so sorry about your father. Turns out, my family had been desperately trying to call me too. But we just couldn't connect. I remember Auntie Asha, I was crying and she was like throwing herself on the floor and then everyone started crying and I was literally like, why are we crying? Then I was like, oh no, like, okay, something bad has actually really happened. I feel like it clicked in that moment. Like, that's when it hit me like, oh, okay, he's actually passed away. From that moment, everything was a complete blur. My father's funeral was happening that same Monday that I finally got through and I was stuck 8,000 kilometers away on another continent. And the kicker? I found out he had died when I was sick at that Saturday photo shoot. And then I remember I was supposed to give a speech, like one of the children was supposed to give a speech, and then I didn't know what to say, like I was scared. And then my aunt was like, just say bye, daddy. And then I still think about that to this day, because I'm like, now I would know what to say, but I was seven and I was put on the spot, like I didn't know what to say. So whilst and I, my little sister, was lost for words by the gravesite, I had to find some in Australia to pass on through the phone to be shared on my behalf to the crowd of hundreds who'd gathered to bury my father. I didn't get to give him one last performance, and it hurt like hell. Losing my 51-year-old father so suddenly was devastating. I spiralled into a depression where I grieved him alone in Australia, as I wore a brave face that my marriage was fine and I was fine. But I wasn't fooling anyone, least of all myself. I kept thinking about my dad, what he had indeed put into me, how much he had expected of me, and what he'd say if he could see me at that moment. Takuzwa, you can do better! I didn't need anyone's permission. I decided to get a divorce. I was choosing my freedom. 
But my mom, my mom is probably worse than my aunties. So I've got a new boyfriend, yes? Ma, he's been to the moon. He writes music. He's beautiful. Mm. But does he know Jesus? Ah! Oh. <laughs> Ma, you're killing me. You don't pray in Australia. Oh. Perth 2016. And I'm at the state finals of the Raw Comedy Stand-Up Competition at a packed theatre. 1,200 people laughed at my jokes about dating after divorce when you have a strict religious mother who wants you married again. I'd recently brought my mother out to Australia on holiday for the first time, and it was a real turning point in our relationship and excellent material for my stand-up comedy. One night, she told me she had consulted the church spirits in Zimbabwe before she came to visit me. She asked if I wanted to hear why I was still single, and who was making things hard for me. Instantly, I shut her down, sick of the church's usual fear-mongering tactics. I knew why I was single. I'd been through a lot of trauma and needed to figure my life out afresh. My mother didn't have my permission to speak into my life. I refused to be shamed by her church for my choices. I said I never wanted to hear about her church spirit consultations again. I chose my freedom. Yeah, my name's Taku, I'm from Zimbabwe, my mum's there, I've got two brothers in Canada, my dad, my dad died 10 years ago, and she's like, yeah, I know, he's standing right next to you. (laughs) (laughs) That's me this year at the Footscray Comedy Club in Melbourne, telling a story about a scary experience that happened to me the year after my mother's Australian visit. On a trip to Vancouver, I booked myself into an Airbnb and my host told me she could see my dead father and my dead grandmother standing next to me. (gasps) I'm like, no, nobody else in my family's ever died. No way. Because I was not paying for extra guests. Forget it. Here I was across the world, far away from Gutara, Jehovah and Zimbabwe, this time hearing from a middle-aged white woman in Canada about ghosts. That night... I was afraid to sleep with the light off. So I swallowed my pride, called my mother, and to my surprise, she calmed me down. And she said, you know, we also believe the good spirits are with us. So don't be afraid. After that, I had the best night's sleep and rated my host five stars. You remember that line that it's so much harder to ask for permission than for forgiveness? I think through my last 20 years in Australia and culminating this year, my 40th year on earth, I didn't realize I was still quietly holding onto the shame of my international elopement. My family forgave me years ago and have always loved me. I've got a new husband and a beautiful child. I'm really happy and I know now I need to forgive my younger self. Performing stand-up comedy gives me permission to laugh at the past mistakes and pain that I have brought into my life. There's no shame when I choose to confess on stage instead of being forced to do so at a church. What feels amazing is knowing that my father would be laughing loudest if he was ever in the front row of my comedy shows. Or maybe he already is.
My name is Takuzwambodzi and you're listening to Earshot. I produced my story on the lands of the Wurundjeri people with sound design by Dale Gorfinkel, sound engineering by Hamish Camilleri and supervising producer Michelle Rayner. In our next episode, we meet an actor, poet and writer who unveils the politics of disclosure when living with HIV in a time when it's no longer a death sentence. Catch you soon. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.